Sports Podcast hosted by yours truly, Nicole Auerbach. Um, we are still a basketball pod for another two weeks because March Madness is still going on. And I am thrilled to be joined by my friend and colleague over at SiriusXM, but his day job is NFL Network. Mike Yam is here to break down the newly minted Final Four. We have been doing a lot of basketball together, so I could not think of a better guest to come on, break down the Elite Eight, set up the Final Four, than you. I, well, A, I appreciate the invite, number one. Number two, I thought you were having me on to talk about Washington's Pro Day because I was just up in Seattle. So little did I know that we were going to ha- continue our basketball coverage. But in all sincerity, it is awesome to be with you. Um, I've had so much fun on SiriusXM just working with you over the last couple of weeks during the tournament. We got a lot more college basketball to discuss with the Final Four still upon us, both on the men's side and the women's side, because you and I will be doing some shows this upcoming weekend. So I, I'm just still sort Sort of shocked and trying to figure out and grasp in my head that there is a final four team from the Pac-12 conference and there were three elite eight teams. Nicole, I still, I mean, how is it a pet peeve of yours? Like when you hear people say things are unbelievable when it's like kind of still believable, but sometimes it irritates me a little bit, but I hear that phrase. This is legitimately something that doesn't even feel believable that we got to this point, but here it is the Bruins. And by the way, how about this UCLA being the final four team and the rep from the PAC 12 and they had to play in the first four. Like that still is. So that's what I'm saying. Like you're allowed to say that it's unbelievable because we've only ever had a first four to the final four once before was VCU. This doesn't happen very often. We're going to go through a laundry list of all of the things that UCLA had to go through this season to get to this point with a hire of a coach two years ago that everyone panned because it was like the hundredth choice of UCLA at the time. So let's start there with the second game of Tuesday night's Elite Eight, the final matchup, my alma mater, Michigan against UCLA. So this was really what it came down to whether we were going to have a very chalky Final Four, we already had two one seeds. We had we had Gonzaga and Baylor already through. Houston, number two seed out of whatever region they were in. An amazing story. First time in the Final Four since the Phi Slamma Jamma years. All these incredible storylines. And then Michigan, the team that we thought for a good portion of the year was the third best team in the country, going up against the 11th seeded UCLA Bruins, who started this whole run by beating the other school in Michigan. The last Pac-12 team standing after they have been the story of the tournament, as you mentioned. And the game was ugly, to be to be kind. It was um, 51 to 49 for, for those who, you know, maybe they're, they kind of, you know, the bloodshot, your eyes went bloodshot or something from, from trying to watch that. And Michigan had, I don't even know how many shots in the paint, within the charge circle, layups, all sorts of missed baskets down the end. They had three legitimate chances to win the game, could not get any shots to fall. And then you had 28 points from Johnny Juzang, who was injured in the second half, but he's just been on fire this entire tournament. 28 points in a game where neither team scored more than 52 points. 
was pretty incredible, pretty dominant. Um, that game did not go any way that I expected it to. It was clearly more low scoring, but UCLA has done that to teams. They have pulled whatever strength their opponent has and just taken it out of the game. And probably the, the most telling part about the way that this game went was at the end, you didn't really know who should take that final shot for Michigan. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I think that was sort of a common theme here. And I'm glad you bring up sort of like the ugliness of the game because in reality, I, and you touched on this a little bit earlier, Nicole, and I think it's it's something that we probably should you know visit during this podcast is this idea of the amount of coaches that had initially had interest, non-interest, however you want to describe it. And then you go and you, you settle on a guy like McCronin who has got this blue-collar mentality. You think about the defense and grind it out and style of play. It might not be the most aesthetically pleasing, which I, I actually don't even know how fair that was for, for Mick getting into this job. But there's one thing that's abundantly clear. A, this team has had to go through a lot of adversity in terms of injuries, uh, in terms of not even having the team that they thought they were going to have at the start of the season. So I think when you focus in on this team's offense, I think you have to have that in the back of your mind. But from a defensive standpoint, I don't think Mick had a problem junking this game up, Nicole, and making he it a little He is comfortable in, this, in these games. And no, no doubt. And I mean, how many times have we seen, we saw it in the first four game against Michigan State. You and I were actually doing a show on SiriusXM together uh, around that night. And I had said this to you, and I, look, I've watched UCLA all season long, and I remember even being there in year one with Mick Cronin at the time I was working at Pac-12 Network. I was down at UCLA. We were doing an interview with him. And I'll never forget Don McLean, who's the leading scorer in conference history. Don Don and I became friends through our time at Pac-12 Network together. And I remember going to to that um, to do that interview. And Don had said to me, their practices are unlike any other practices that I've seen a UCLA team have over the years. The things that Mick is preaching and tracking and tip balls and all of like these defensive metrics, he said, this is where there's going to be a real adjustment for this basketball team. And it's played out that way. And if I think if you would have said to a UCLA fan at the start of the season, how do you feel about the direction of the program? They all would have said, hell yeah, like we're, we're it's this upward trajectory. Get to a final four. I don't know who would have expected that. I mean, it's been a while. It's like the Ben Hallen years, right? Yes. And yep. it's it's that's a considerable amount of time. And I think the scary thing about it is this team, once again, not even at full strength, their best player. I thought Nicole heading into the season, Chris Smith was on the short list for player of the year honors. If you said to me, who would be your pick at the start? He was one of three guys. I never really typically go with uh, freshman before the season starts. So a guy like Evan Mobley, for example, who I knew was on the radar, I wouldn't have said, hey, front runner. I just like to know known commodities. So Remy Martin came to mind. But Chris Smith, you saw this explosion at the end of last season. That guy goes down with the torn ACL. Jalen Hill, he's got to leave you know, the team because of personal reasons 16 games in. And now you're left with this roster. And this roster got it done. I think what's happening in between the ears of these players, Nicole, is the game changer and the difference to why you're seeing this team have success. End of the regular season slash conference tournament, they lose four four consecutive games, and I actually don't think they played all that bad in those matchups. But they had leads in those games, and you know the one thing that stands in my mind every year that I've covered the Pac-12, who is the tough team? And Nicole, you've done a tremendous job in your career following teams. It, it is there's you can't look at a box score right, like to say who's the toughest team, like on the you just you, you know it when you see it. 
And I don't, there were times this year where I wasn't sure who the toughest team in the Pac 12 was. And UCLA, because they were able to navigate the Chris Smith injury and Hill leaving the team, I was like, all right, maybe there is something to it. And then I started to question it because of those leads that they were giving up late in ball games. The way they won that game against Michigan State, I think, has completely changed the trajectory of their season. It, they they have figured out ways to win tough matchups, and I don't know if I would have said that that was the case heading into into the big dance at, based off of what we saw down the stretch. So kudos to them. I will stop with my rant, but it is definitely uh, a surprise. And in a lot of ways, I think UCLA fans like this is gravy for them. This is a gravy season in COVID without your best player to make it to a final four when recruiting is still going well. Like this is a remarkable run. And I think this sets them up for a ton of success in years to come. Let's go through all of the coaches who were attached to the UCLA opening because it's pretty fascinating. This was actually a really interesting matchup just in in terms of second year coaches one, the Juwan Howard coming back to the alma mater, Jim, you know, after John Beeline abruptly, you know, goes and leaves for the NBA. People didn't think that was coming. Right. So that was an interesting transition in general. On the other side, let's just read this from a Jeff Eisenberg Yahoo story. OK, uh, so massive offer to try and learn John Calipari. He gets oh. a lifetime deal at Kentucky instead. <laughs> I was just going to say, way to parlay that into a contract. They pursued Tony Bennett in case he wanted a fresh start. He said no. And then Virginia obviously won their national championship. Uh, Jamie Dixon in the mix, but he had a big buyout at TCU and there was no way to work around that. Then thought that one was going to Rick happen. Barnes, uh, who renegotiated to, and stayed at Tennessee and made more money. And at that point... They go for Mick Cronin, who, you know, takes Cincinnati to the NCAA tournament every year. Like you said, defensive minded, tough, gritty, all of those words that everyone loves to talk about when they talk about, you know, scrappy white basketball players and teams. And they hire him and it is panned. It is totally panned. Everyone is saying, look how far mighty UCLA has come. They cannot get a sitting power five coach. They can't get one of the big names. They were turned down. All of these things. Two years later, you do this. And and to your point, it is gravy. This is all playing with house money. This is all great. This is ahead of schedule. This is, there's no expectations. And I think that as a coach, that's got to be the most fun way to coach and go through this run in the tournament. And I think you see that because you also see, obviously, Mick's enjoying this with his father and, and the camera shows us that every time. And, you know, with, with all that's been sacrificed this year with COVID and, and all of that stuff matters and it, it contributes to emotion and the way that teams celebrate. But also when you're playing with house money, there's not that type of pressure. You're not the one who, when the game is on the line, you're not the team that everyone's like, oh, are they choking? Like that just doesn't happen because no one expects you to be there in the first place. And I think they're playing that way. They're playing loose. They're playing like they got nothing to lose. And and they don't. And now you get in a situation where Gonzaga trying to go undefeated, win a national championship, best team Mark Fuse had, so many pros on this roster. They have to go through UCLA to do that. And it's like you couldn't you couldn't 
write this. Yeah, yeah you, you yeah. we 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 made so much fun of the fact that it was UCLA, Michigan State for the first four because they basically said we're doing this for ratings, two brand names. Well, this is also an incredible, incredible storyline for Mark Few and Gonzaga. I'm totally with you on that. And I think the scariest thing about this matchup from a UCLA perspective is the fact that it is Gonzaga that they have to play. I think that what we saw against USC, Nicole, to me, they are by far. I mean, I knew that they were the best team. We've been preaching about this for for weeks. Like the, the national championship goes through Mark Few's squad. This team, though, is it is stellar. And you and I have gone back and forth uh, about this topic. It's it's kind of wild to me how little I don't want to say they're not getting enough respect because I think finally they, they're, the they're starting team. to. It's it's yeah, coming. It, 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 it shouldn't a have taken this long and b it's almost not enough. I think you can make an argument like this team just because of the feat of going undefeated. And, and look, they're still, they got to take care of business, right? It's two more games. It's, it's a final four against UCLA and then a national championship game against either Houston or Baylor. I, I mean, you go undefeated in a COVID year. I, I'm sorry. Like, I think that historically puts you into a different category and stratosphere. And if there's another team that runs the table in 40 some odd years, I'll still look at this Gonzaga team. Um, I don't know how old I'll be in 40. Yeah, I'll be too well, old. We'll, we'll be talking about that, that. Remember the pandemic year? No, I I remember working with Nicole <laughs> saying that this is the toughest thing that any team has ever had to do, but there's like a lot of truth to it. And I think people don't really uh, appreciate some of the, the nuance surrounding it because we take for granted that we get to sit and watch these games in front of our television. But Nicole, how many players, if I if you had to put a, a number on it, how many players do you think you've interviewed in your career? College athletes. Oh, thousands, yeah, like right? a thousand. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So I bet it's even more than a thousand, but let's just say it's a thousand. Have you ever had one student athlete ever say to you, yeah, it's tough? I, I've never heard no. that, but in the last few weeks, even with injuries, I've t- even with injury, I've never heard. I, it is the rarest of rare. But in the last two weeks, I've talked to and I've interviewed multiple athletes and I've asked them all a question about what the season has been like. And every single one of them has talked about something that they've had to do, whether it was the daily testing or not seeing their family or just the grind of the season. And every one of them said, yeah, it was actually pretty tough. And I've never seen that before. So if you have 18, 19, 20-year-old kids saying that, to me, I don't even think we can scratch the surface on how difficult this run has been. And they're dominant. It's it's what, 29 out of 30 games, whatever it is, consecutively, it's double-digit wins for them. They're not really being challenged by anyone. I thought the length of SC would, would give them problems. It was a clinic in the first half. It was garbage time in the second half. Um, Andy Enfield even said he was surprised with the way. That, I think we all were. Like I thought it was going to be a game, and it and it wasn't. It wasn't a game. No, and, and I think that's what's impressive and finally people are starting to be like oh this is one of the all-time great teams is because we weren't blinking they were winning by 20 and you're just kind of like yeah like all right you know that's just that's kind of how they do it there used to be so many narratives around this program it was that they were never battle tested for march madness because they played in the west coast conference and they you know they were just so much better than everyone for two months 
Then it was Mark Few is the best coach to never get to the Final Four, can't get through the first weekend. I mean, there were all sorts of stories about this program. And they have just shattered all of them. The last thing left is winning a national championship. They've been in the title game. This year, they have how many pros? Like at least three. I was just going to say about three pros. Um, I mean, hell, it was just funny the other day. Charles Barkley was on, and I know you know Charles is kind of watching the college game. He said he takes Suggs number one overall, and he said you know that that they had the best three. It's funny because Kenny gave them you know some you know ish. Uh, I'm trying to think of a better way to 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 not drop an s bomb, but Kenny gave it to him a little bit because Charles said, "Hey, the I the three best pros are all wearing Gonzaga uniforms," and Kenny was like, "What, Evan Mobley?" And he's like, "No, Evan's good." But hell, after the game played out, it's like, damn, Charles is kind of right about it. Yeah, I, I think. It was clear also on Tuesday night that this was kind of the first time Charles had actually fully watched a Gonzaga game. He's like, oh, you know, when you really watch them, yeah, they're really good. (laughs) The ball movement's pretty good. They got guys moving all over. Yeah, I was like, well, well, it's actually yeah, well, welcome. Thanks for joining us. Um, But like Drew Timmy is probably going to be like the most outstanding player of the tournament. I mean, the look like that is just. It's it's quintessential Gonzaga. They grow their hair out too long. They have weird facial hair. Like it is just I think of the Kelly Olynyk years. Like I remember like it they're just they do things differently there. They recruit internationally. They build these rosters in such interesting ways. And this particular team is breaking all sorts of efficiency records, right? Offensive and defensive. And we're seeing it play out because at some point you're like, "Okay, well, you know, the quality of competition, X, Y, and Z." doesn't matter it doesn't matter and what i like despite all the craziness because we all love the upsets in the early parts of the tournament we also again it's crazy to have a double digit seed in the final four this year in ucla but i am so so glad that we still have gonzaga and we still have baylor and they're still on a collision course because they were the two best teams all year all year all year, you're 100 percent right. I, look, I I do want to talk about that in a second. I just want to say one other thing about the schedule and the teams that Gonzaga had played. And Nicole, look, we're both originally from New Jersey, and we got the East Coast ties. And I know you live in Chicago now. I'm on the West Coast in San Francisco. When I worked at ESPN before I took the net the the job at Pac-12 Network, I had heard the phrase East Coast bias. Right? I just didn't really believe it. And then I moved out to the Bay Area, and in two weeks covering the Pac-12 that closely, I said, oh, yeah, like this is an actual thing. And I think the one, well, I've learned a lot of things, but one of the things that I had learned was it was easy to take shots at what was happening on the West Coast. And I'm going to expand it. I'm not just going to say the Pac-12. I'll use Gonzaga and I'm going to lump them into just the West Coast, right? Where you can be critical of their schedule, not maybe pay close enough attention to what they're doing, all those types of things. And I've heard, hey, they're not playing, you know, the WCC, it's not, it's not great. Okay, fine. You know, the WW, the WCC is not exactly like going through what the Big Ten was this year. But what I can say is Gonzaga, they're non-conference, right? They beat Kansas, they beat Auburn, they beat West Virginia was another team that they took out. They didn't get to play Baylor. That game, I think, was canceled because of COVID issues. They beat an Iowa team. They beat a Virginia team. So it's a slew of squads that were playing in the NCAA tournament You know, from other conferences, from other Power Five conferences, and they still went undefeated. And I can't help but think, if this was the same identical roster, 
at the and the Jersey said Duke or North Carolina, we would be having a conversation that this is the greatest team in the history of college basketball. Because when I was a college student at Fordham and we were in the Atlantic 10 and St. Joseph's, who, by the way, speaking to Michigan, Phil Martelli, you know, the, that, that was Delonte West. That was Jameer Nelson. Like that team had a remarkable run. And even in the Northeast, there was this conversation historically. Oh, how great would this be? And look at this magical run. Like, man, we ain't talking about that stuff with with Gonzaga this year. So I do think that there is a little bit of the um, that East Coast bias or the West Coast just not getting enough credit. So for as much as I would love, just because I, I obviously have a, an attachment to the Pac-12, I would love to see a UCLA team win a national championship. Right now, I'll just take a team out on the West Coast and let's see some history with Mark Few's squad and and let's see some magic here. Yeah, I, I referred to it earlier this week as the West Coast is having its moment, a West Coast moment. Yeah. But you're absolutely right. And I think that that does shape the way that we talk about this. Um, you know, when Kentucky was undefeated heading into the tournament, Great call. it was a daily conversation topic. I scheduled, that was when I was primarily doing hoops. I scheduled my entire February and March around that, like anticipating, because, oh, by the way, the SEC was down that year. They were just so much better than everybody else. Again, very different narrative than Gonzaga because people still thought Kentucky was good. I scheduled it. I was like, all right, they're going to go unbeaten in league play. I'll go to the regular season finale and I'll go to the SEC tournament. I will see them. I'll work on all these stories. I'll save all this stuff because it was such an omnipresent storyline. And that has not been the case with Gonzaga. People have totally taken for granted the fact that Mark Mark View and the investment, you know, across the board from the school, the athletic department and everything built this into the type of program that can regularly compete for national championships instead of jumping for a different job, instead of, you know, just re- resign to their fate of, you know, OK, we're only going to you know be able to really do this every once in a while. Six straight sweet 16s. This is this is a power and they built it in this small, beautiful town in Spokane, Washington. And it is just remarkable. I I say this all the time, but Mark Few is the only coach I know who actually has work-life balance. He goes fly fishing. He does all sorts of outdoor activities with his kids. It's been a huge reason why he hasn't left. And no one else is wired that way. And so that's why you see other coaches saying such nice things about Mark Few, the way he built this program, and that they want him to win a national championship. There are so, there are certain coaches that even when, you know, all everything, all the lights shining on them and everything's great, you still still kind of like pulling teeth to get other coaches to say nice things about them. It's that's not what's happened here. It's, it's the same with John Beeline when Michigan was in the title game a few years ago. You had all these Big Ten coaches, Izzo, people pulling for him. It's the same thing with Mark Few. There's certain guys that, especially the way that he's done it, that people are pulling for. What's cool about this Final Four is all four of these coaches, it'll be the first, like, it'll be their first national championship, which is awesome. And I think very, certainly for for Scott Drew and Baylor and, and Mark Pugh at Gonzaga, so deserved just for the length of their tenures, what they inherited, what they built. But Kelvin Sampson being in the Final Four in the state of Indiana, the All-Indiana Tournament, remarkable, just a remarkable story. Um, I, I just, I think it's turned into something really special. I didn't know what this tournament was going to feel like, but I think it's turned into something really cool and 
man, if it really is Gonzaga and Baylor in the title game, that's all you can really ask for. And that's what we thought it was going to be. I, I said this to you maybe a week ago, Nicole, that two, more like three months ago, it was very clear the two best teams in the country were Gonzaga and, and Baylor. And as the conference tournament started to roll around, you know, you start thinking, all right, who could win? It's the NCAA tournament. There's going to be some upsets. We saw Baylor not look Baylor-esque coming off of their COVID pause. And I, I think I had mentioned to you, I loved Oklahoma State with Cunningham. Like I thought I actually had them on my personal bracket winning the national championship th- this year. I thought they were really impressive. I thought Illinois was a team that was going to be terrific. And clearly, I mean, <laughs> I'm on a sh- on your show right now talking about two teams that, you know, I don't even know if I deserve to be a guest, you know, considering how the the, uh, the teams that I thought would go really far uh, where they finished. But I think the one thing it, it does seem right and it seems fitting that those two teams are not only in the final four, but if you said to me, hey, make your picks like they're winning in the final four to get to a national championship. Like I think Houston's going to give a run, but Baylor, I think right now is still a better basketball team. And I love UCLA's story. Like, my God, I love this story. But I mean, I don't think anyone's beaten Gonzaga this year. What does it say about the weird COVID year if Alabama might have been one of the all-time great college football teams and they win it? And Gonzaga, which would, if they win this undefeated, will be in that conversation. I think it's, 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 it's like the idea of an asterisk, but in the opposite direction, because it's the team that everyone felt, you know, talent wise, cohesion wise, like everything, like they were the best teams, but then they also handled something that no one can really control well enough to get through a season, stay healthy and peak at the right time. Like that would just be remarkable. I think in light of what we saw in football season, where clearly the best team in an all time team did something special if we saw that in basketball as well, considering every other variable around them. I think, and maybe you would disagree with me on this, and I know you're so close to a lot of these programs, both football and basketball-wise, but I feel like football is a little bit different. And what I mean by that is, right now I could tell you next year who three of the four college football playoff teams are going to be. I, there's clearly less parity in that sport than there is in basketball. And, you know, the way that the, the tournament's structured, the way the college football playoff is structured, like that just, it, it's kind of what it is. And then I'd also say if we want to go the COVID angle, and my God, you're probably going to have some listeners that are going to hit me up on social media and crush me for saying this, but I will say, like, I really do believe this. I think regionally how COVID was handled actually favored other teams. Um, in an almost an unfair advantage, which also makes this run for the Pac-12 even more remarkable. Um, I don't think people really understand some of the challenges out on the West Coast compared to other areas, right? Like, even if you look at it from a football perspective alone, the Pac-12 cancels its season. Dudes are transferring from their schools and played this year at other universities because they just wanted to play and that wasn't going to be an option. The Big Ten changes course. Of course, the Pac-12 has got to be a follower and then follows the Big Ten's lead and then they go and they have a season. So guys were at home. Guys were not working out. 
guys were not around team facilities. Like that was happening in other conferences. And hell, it was happening even in the Big Ten conference. And yet in the Pac 12, there is just like this inherent disadvantage that was happening during the football season. Then basketball comes around. Uh, Stanford, who was not in the NCAA tournament, who had one of the best freshmen in the country who didn't necessarily have the impact that I think people anticipated. You know, He had a, a death in the family. He had some other issues uh, not being around the team, but Zaire Williams is the player that I'm referring to. They were a team that didn't play a home game, did not play a home game until February. They were in Santa Clara. They couldn't go back to campus. That's why Stanford's football team spent three weeks on the road and won their games. Like it is just Cal had to go to Dick Sporting Goods to go and get basketball hoops to put on the tennis court because they couldn't have, and guys, you couldn't have more than two players touch the same basketball. I mean, think about some of those things. So I, I understand COVID has affected everyone. I really do. And clearly it's, it's affected people massively on a real life. We're talking sports here and that's the angle that, that I'll stick with. But I, I do think that there was a real disadvantage for some teams out on the West coast because of COVID and the challenges of trying to navigate local health officials and, and what they had anticipated um, that was appropriate. I mean, hell, like we just got indoor dining like a week ago here at like 25% in San Francisco. I mean, this is, I mean, Hell, like Texas, and I, I, I watch the news. Everyone else has been open for a really long time, Nicole. So I do think that there are just some challenges out on the West Coast for some of these teams. And just a cross-promotional shout, Stanford women in the Final Four, they did that too. Oh, I mean, again, it's yeah. it's yeah. it was such a unique year. People are going to write books about these experiences on these rosters and going through all of it. And it is stunning. And, and I think you've seen... A lot of emotion. I think every year when only one team gets to win at the end, everyone else ends the season on a loss. You always see that. But the, my gosh, the, the, the agony of defeat, the thrill of victory has never been more apparent. And it's, it's been really emotional. I think you're seeing all of those, those elements kind of come out. As, as you said, like players don't usually say anything is tough. And they have been living in isolation for, for so long to have this opportunity to play for a national title. And so it's it's pretty cool that we have reached the finish line and we have reached yeah. these final fours, um, you know, that that on the men's side, they lost one game, but that was it. And none on the women's side. So it's just it's just been a really, you know, kind of incredible tournament. I do, you know, since you are the, the resident West Coast Expert and the West Coast. Uh, the, Use the air quotes around that. Yes. Well. Well. Okay. So, but but I do want to like at least get into a couple of the theories about why we think yeah. we saw what we did this tournament. Sure. So heading. So in the Elite Eight, Michigan was the only school left. Well. Okay. Yeah. Was it the whole Elite Eight? The only school east of the Mississippi. Uh, I think it was. Yeah. I think of the entire yes, yes of the entire Elite yeah. Eight. Um. And obviously, you had three Pac-12 teams. No one saw that coming, just like no one saw UCLA's run here. Why do we think it clicked? Were we just totally undervaluing the Pac-12 as a league? Were we totally overvaluing the Big Ten? How did we get it so wrong? I've thought about this a lot, and I think there's something that comes with the month of March. Like You're going to get upsets, and there's going to be surprises. But I really believe this, Nicole we were trending in this direction a year ago. I would make an argument that the Pac-12 was a better basketball conference a year ago 
than it is this season. I think about the Peyton Pritchards of the world. Hey, I look at it from an NBA perspective, which I know is not always the best way to look at things, but clearly if you have NBA talent, you got a chance to win a national championship. The conference had 10 players drafted a year ago from the Pac-12, six in the first round, four in the second round. If you go to, and I can pull it up right now as we're talking, but draft.net, which occasionally I will peruse to kind of see what the mocks are saying. And it's, it's just one source, but they have four total players being drafted, three in the first round and one in the second round from the Pac-12. So just from a talent perspective, I think that the, the, the league was trending in a successful way. And had we had a tournament, I got to be honest with you, Nicole, like, I don't, Oregon was making a run last year. And Oregon might have been the center of the college basketball world because I think the Oregon women under Kelly Graves was going, they were going to win a national championship. They had three top 10 picks in the WNBA. So to me, I think there's a lot to be said for what had happened last year. And then it's just, it's getting hot at the right time. We've seen this in other, in other tournaments. And from an Oregon State perspective, damn, like those dudes just got hot at the right time and they made a run and they gave us like these emotional moments that, that we can gravitate towards and, and really just never forget, right? Like I'm not going to forget the run that Wayne Tinkle's team had this season. And it's still remarkable to me that, two guys that used to wear that uniform and Trey Stinkle and Stevie Thompson, Ethan's older brother, they were two of the best guys that we've had in the league the last few years. And, and this Oregon state team got to the elite eight. Like there's it, it's, it doesn't make sense, but it's March and it's not necessarily supposed to make sense, which is maybe not the most scientific uh, way to answer. No, your it's, question, that's but- acceptable. We don't need to always rely on science or, you know, data. I, I also think like shout out to the, the hashtag, Tinkle at Hinkle. I mean, again, only oh yeah, that was only cool. this yeah. year yeah. would something like that have happened and been serious and possibly yeah. part of the magic. Yeah. It, it's been really fun, and I, and I think um, you know before we wrap up, I do want to talk a little bit about you know the Final Four itself and just sort of again, you know, the the storylines because because I think you're with me in terms of we know who's going to be favored in each matchup, you know, kind of maybe pulling for that so that you do get kind of the two heavyweights in the championship game. But um, I I do want to ask kind of on a macro level what these two matchups of Gonzaga, UCLA, and Houston, and Baylor, what they mean for the sport. Because I think so much of the way that we look at college basketball is framed of like the health of the sport. And we talk about the regular season and the issues, talk about the best postseason out of any sports. But one of the narratives this year was about the lack of blue bloods. And not only do we have one, surprisingly, in the Final Four, they're the biggest underdog. They are, we'd we'd be surprised, but again, can't be shocked after the run they're on if they got to the championship game. But either way, like, is is it good? Like, not even just from a rating perspective, is it good that these are the teams that we get in, in the sports major showcase moment? I love it. I, what is there not to like? Do you really want to see? I mean, Duke fans do, right? North Carolina fans do. Do you always want to see these known commodities and these big brands every single year in the Final Four? I mean, that's kind of like for any fan who wants to say that, I'd say you can never ask for the college football playoff to expand. You just you can't go and do that. To me, I watch this and I say, we got a Houston team. Like what? 
really? In the Final Four? Hey, that's pretty cool. We got a Gonzaga team that's an undefeated squad that's on the precipice of making history in the, from the WCC. That's really cool. We got a Baylor team. I mean, tell me in the Big 12, you'd pick Baylor over the last few years to be the one that that is going to have that success? No, I mean, like, so like, that's great. And then there's a UCLA team that's that had to play an extra game with the first four to get to the final four. Like, to me, I think that's compelling. And yeah, I, Nicole, I said this to you on a show we were doing together on, on Sirius XM the other day. I was thrilled that we got basketball back. I was watching the first four, the, the day one uh, action, and then on day two of the first round, it was the Ohio-Virginia game. And for whatever reason, this moment still just sort of stands out to me. And it was the moment where I said, oh my God, Like we really have basketball back, and it's March Madness. Ohio's about to beat Virginia, and they flashed into the crowd a father and a son and like the look of pure joy and excitement on this little boy's face and his dad, a grown man, like he gets to share that moment with his son and look, they go on to lose and they don't have this great run, but do they care? I mean, hell, they just beat Virginia and Tony Bennett's team and the juggernaut and it's, Hey, the five-star guys and we're the little dudes like that's, well, Preston's obviously a really good, talented player. But the point is, it's it's like that's what the NCAA tournament is all about. So to me, I love. I think this combination is is a unique, and B, I think it's actually great for the sport. So we always wrap up the show with last call, um, which yeah, you know yeah. this is your first time. So oh, the yeah. rules are: you either it's something you want to celebrate and you would cheers to last call at a bar, sure. or it's something you want to rant about. And I'm going to go first because it sort of spins off of your answer just there. And I'm going to raise a glass and cheers to Scott Drew because I think that we talk a lot about Mark Few and what he builds. There's been some renewed spotlight on the just horrific environment that Scott Drew walked into 18 years ago. But to do what you said, to, to dethrone Kansas in the Big 12, when death, taxes, and Kansas winning the Big 12 for 12 years or however many years it was in a row. I mean, Hall of Fame coach. And, and they didn't, you didn't ask Kansas to drop off. They didn't have some major, like, crisis and, like, you know, insane sanctions, something that totally brought them back down to earth. No, Baylor had to go up and get it. And it's remarkable, and I don't think Scott Drew gets enough credit because people think he's, you know, he's corny or, like, it's an act or whatever. But I'm going to give, I'm going to raise my glass and cheers to him for being relentlessly positive. We could all use a little more of that in our lives. Like, it's not even glass half full. The glass will be a quarter full, and he'll think it's half full. And you know what? I think that's great, and I think that it's refreshing that someone who is like that can be at this point on the precipice of possibly winning a national championship after inheriting a horrible situation at Baylor, building from the bottom. He calls, you know, players and people who helped him get jobs along the way in the beginning parts of his career so that they are part of this. And we don't talk about it enough. People, it's it's easy to, you know, people who are too positive and too, um, you know, uplifting and always looking on the bright side, we make fun of them as a society. And... I am going to cheers to that. Cheers to Scott Drew. Cheers to the build, getting to this point, getting these guys, because he had a team last year that could have won it all, to come back and do it again and get to the point 
that they thought that they could. That is not easy to do, especially with the COVID pause in February. None of this is easy. And it's just really cool. And I am going to cheers to Scott and also just to being more positive. I think we should all be a little bit more glass half full. I like where your head's at. But do you drink wine? Yes, of course. I, I feel like we should be having this conversation and we're doing this over like Zoom right now, but we should be like, if you're going to do like the power hour at the end, like in, at, at, cheers, at some like, point, you yes. kind of, yeah, like you kind of need to like, like bring it then for real. I'm just, I'm throwing okay, that but your this, way. This is and, good feedback for, 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 for yeah. your next, for your return to the podcast. And how about this? Like maybe there's a sponsorship opportunity for you. Great idea. I mean, there's some wineries that I could suggest for you. I don't know if you're a beer person or, or a wine person, but either way, I, I, think the powers that be should go and get you a sponsor for for this segment. So um, I will say two things. One, uh, love your Scott Drew um, cheers because we had Scott Drew on Selection Sunday and I had asked him if he ever thinks back about and be like reflective on all the things that he's done because it really has been a more remarkable run for him. And I'll, I won't forget his answer. I'm paraphrasing here, but it was something to the effect of if I spend time looking back, someone's going to pass me. And I do hope that Coach changes that mindset just a little bit because I do think it's important to kind of reflect back on on some of the things because sometimes you need some of that positivity. But I'm going to stick on the positivity front as well. And I'm going to say, I'm going to turn a negative into a positive. People always crush social media. They say that you're spending too much time on the screen and, and all that stuff. And I think there's a lot of truth to it. But the power of social media for good, I think, is on full display. And Nicole, you and I heading into the Women's Final Four and the Women's National Championship, you and I will be doing some shows on SiriusXM. And I can't help but think about these viral videos that I had seen, uh, like everyone else, over the last couple of weeks or so on some of the conditions in San Antonio compared to Indianapolis. And I think there's a lot of things that you can discuss. The food, which was horrendous. It started with the weight room picks, which is just absolutely awful. But And I'll give credit to Dallin Cuff, one of our, our friends and colleagues who brought this up to me because I didn't realize it until he said it. He said that the men were getting PCR tests and the women were getting antigen tests. And for those who don't know, the PCR ones are way more accurate. The antigen tests are, are not as good as the PCR tests. And to me, it is an absolute disgrace to the nth degree that the NCAA would, the, the swag bag, the gym, the food, all, all bad. But brass tacks, you're talking about the health of these student athletes and to to save a little bit of cash on those tests is, is in my mind, unforgivable. Like that is just so inappropriate and all those things. And here's where the positive comes. We wouldn't have known about this, right? If it not been for social media and some of those videos. So I will cheers to that. Um, and can I do a quick little tangent here? Yes. And also I just, as okay. an aside, I appreciate that your last call was a rant and a cheer. Like it was both in the same. Yeah. yeah, yeah no, it's okay. impressive. All right, okay. All right. pressure, pressure on for the next one. Uh, uh, like 10, 15 minutes ago, you had said something and it immediately, immediately got me thinking into this tangent world. Um, you said that people are going to be writing books about the COVID era. And I just flash back because it's like this signature monumental moment in all of our lives. And I think back to the stories that my grandfather used to tell me when I was a kid about the Great Depression and all these types of things. And like you'd read about it in your books. And then I realized, oh, my God, like and I don't I don't want to get too personal with you. But like, I don't know if you want to have kids or any of that stuff or you're going to be an aunt or whatever the case may be. But I just realized that in like 15, 20, 30 years, like whoever like the little ones are in your life, they're going to say, you know, like, 
oh, like, what was that like? And you're going to be able to do something that almost no one else is going to do. You're going to be like, yo, here's Google, right? Just look up all these articles. You're going to give them a stack <laughs> and you have it already chronicled or you're going to write a book about it. So to me, it actually, like, uh, like I said, complete tangent there, but I did think like you could actually write the sports COVID book for the next generation and I would read it because we're friends, <laughs> but I wouldn't want to read it because I lived it and I want to forget what this last year has been like. So complete tangent and I don't know how we end the show and how you transition from there, but you're the pro. So I will just sit back and get your reaction to that. <laughs> I, I think you're right. It, it also, just to tie a bow on it, We'll also have this record of all of these social media posts. Like I still have, yeah. like, I think it saved it, you know, on Instagram. I remember counting the first days of quarantine and being like, day nine, bought a plant. You know, when we thought it was only <laughs> going to be like 14 days. Yeah, so we have yeah. all of these records of all of these things. And it's yeah. it's pretty incredible. Facebook memories. Be oh, yeah, those, those will be great next year <laughs> to get them all for the coming months. Sure, um, sure. But seriously, um, it's it's been a wild year. We do have a lot of it documented. And yeah. um, I, I do hope that a lot of these players and coaches who have lived just something that is just unimaginable um yeah. what that was like i do hope that they you know open up about it at some point but that'll yeah. do it for power hour mike yam nfl network sirius xm good friend of the show he will be back we will do a power hour with I'm some ready. wine sips of wine yeah. perhaps we will do a real no, power. No, that's not how I okay, roll. Okay. So I got the I'm looking at my decanter right now. Like that <laughs> that sucker needs to be filled. So I actually know what I would open for a conversation. You got Perfect. Like, we're gonna go in depth. So you gotta go big bold cab. So I have some recommendations for All right. you. So we'll, okay, we'll good. That out. See see the West Coast bias. It's like wine oh, country, yeah. <laughs> even even better. Perfect. We will do that next time you're on the show. Power hour will be back next week, back on Tuesday as normal. Um, I'm Nicole Auerbach. Thanks for listening. He's Mike Yam. Go follow him on all platforms, everywhere. Social media. Social media. The great. Oh, yeah. Yes. The, Cheers. The, the negative and the good of social media. Um, and Power Hour will be back next week. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed it, rate, review, comment, all of that jazz. We'll talk to you soon. Subscribe. Yes, that too.